So my name is Kathleen Keown and the literary context that I'm going to be introducing today for paper four is gender. And there's quite a lot of ground for me to cover, so I'll try and move swiftly um, because I'm going to try and discuss two interconnecting topics. Firstly, I'm going to discuss conversations surrounding and representations of gender in the period. And then I'm also going to discuss the rapid increase in women's writing, which also took place in this period. If you're interested in the historical development of women's writing, then paper four is the paper for you. Uh, and it's also important for all of you to have some knowledge of the debates surrounding gender in this period, not only so that you could write an essay on gender, but also because gender is one of the most prevalent representational structures in the period's literature. And what I mean by this is that writers frequently use gender to talk about other things by representing those things as masculine or feminine. The language of gender is inherently concerned with issues of power, of difference and competition, of tradition versus progress. And so writers use gender to explore these issues in a host of other contexts, such as competing forms of political government or traditional versus new genres of literary writing. As an example, here's the historian Edward Gibbon reflecting upon the literature that he read in the late 1750s. He remembers, I was directed to the writings of Swift and Addison. Wit and simplicity are their common attributes, but the style of Swift is supported by manly original vigour. That of Addison is adorned by the female graces of elegance and mildness, and the contrast of too coarse or too thin a texture is visible even in the defects of these celebrated authors. So different literary styles are represented here as masculine or feminine. Swift's vigorous satire, often coarse and designed to shock, versus Addison's elegant periodicals designed to entertain and educate. There are two important caveats, however. Firstly, Swift and Addison share common attributes. Manly vigour and feminine elegance are different ways of expressing the same principles of wit and simplicity. And secondly, there's the suggestion that writing can be too coarse or too thin, and so maybe it might be a good idea to find some compromise between the two. So despite this separation of the masculine and the feminine, they might have things in common, and they might not be totally irreconcilable. This extract is a good example of how gendered language can be used to reinforce traditional binaries and set them against each other, but it can also be used to critique complicate and collapse those simple divisions of male and female, public and private, high and low, old and new, monarchy and state, Tory and Whig, manuscript and print. Uh, a lexis of gender effectively enables writers to explore these issues. In a helpful essay, which is referenced on your handout, Margaret Doody questions, why was the restoration so gender conscious? And for her, the, after, the answer lies in the aftermath of the English Civil War, which Doody describes as a war of styles. You have the cavaliers with long locks, lace and licentiousness, feminine, and the roundheads with short, ugly haircuts and dark plain clothing, masculine. Quite simplistic. Uh, the style of the cavaliers was often seen as an affront to traditional masculinity, and this was not helped by the libertine culture, which went on to prosper within the Restoration Court. Libertine culture promoted free sexual expression, and both men and women wrote in the libertine tradition. Women faced something of a contradiction, however, in that libertinism gave them permission to pursue sexual pleasure, but once they elected to do so, they were seen as morally compromised. Male libertine writers like the Earl of Rochester often, although not always, presented women as sexual objects to be preyed upon. 
Now, today we might instinctively inter interpret this sort of libertine writing as a kind of performative hypermasculinity. But at the time, libertinism was often perceived as effeminate behavior. And the reason for this was that it was not only considered effeminate to behave or dress like a woman, but also to be too fond of women, to excessively seek the company of women. Rochester himself was one of several writers who satirized Charles II's weakness for women as a kind of effeminacy which distracted him from masculine matters of state. His scepter and his pricker of a length, and she may sway the one who plays with the other. In 1690, a pamphlet remembered Charles's reign for weakening and making soft the military temper of the people by debauchery and effeminacy, which generally go hand in hand together. So despite, in fact, because of this debauchery and sexual pursuit of women, libertines, the aristocracy, the monarchy, the court, and elite culture in general were generally perceived and portrayed as effeminate. And gendered language increasingly became a way of expressing anxieties surrounding social class. As the aristocracy became feminized, the merchant and middling classes responded by seeking out new ways of defining their own masculinity. And as we turn from the 17th to the 18th century, a new model of the modern 18th century man begins to emerge, particularly in conduct books and periodicals such as the Athenian Mercury, the Tatler, and the Spectator. This model was founded upon principles of civility, sociability, and politeness. Politeness, as the poet James Miller described it, is that fairest offspring of the social mind, nursed by good nature, by good sense refined. The qualities of politeness, however, are arguably somewhat feminine. This fairest offspring that is nursed creates an image of beauty and procreation. Moreover, as Judy observes, much of the money of the middling sort relied upon the trade of feminine luxury goods, such as tea, silk, and porcelain. So this new model of masculinity, again, opened itself up to charges of effeminacy. And although Whig writers, such as Joseph Addison and Lady Mary Wharton Montague, perceived this feminized culture as a sign of civilization, satirical conservative writers like Alexander Pope saw it as a sign of decline. For those writers, women and the feminine became a kind of shorthand for expressing anxieties about the new 18th century world, with its bourgeois values and its foundation upon mercantile capitalism. Probably the most famous literary manifestation of this anxiety is Pope's The Rape of the Lock. In this passage, instead of a classical hero being prepared for battle, uh, we encounter Belinda at her toilette as her maid adorns her with puffs, powders, patches, and goods acquired through foreign trade. The new feminized culture has rendered Pope unable to write straightforward epic poetry. And yet, The Rape of the Lock was wildly popular, as were many other mock writings in the period, mock heroic, mock pastoral, texts which subverted expectations of genre, often by playing with gender. In this case, readers enjoyed Pope's rejuvenation of the traditional couplet form and his fantastical descriptions, such as that image of the tortoise and the elephant transformed into combs. As Ros Ballister has observed, Pope may be decrying consumerist femininity, but he does make it both magnetically attractive and magical. So although he mocks the collapse of masculine tradition into contemporary femininity, his rhetoric inadvertently hints at the hidden benefits of such interactions. The idea that the masculine and the feminine could productively complement each other was a central tenet of 18th century politeness. 
Women were, amongst other things, believed to have a stabilizing influence upon men's natural tempers and passions. The civilizing effect of a woman is perhaps most obvious in Samuel Richardson's Pamela, where the servant girl Pamela's consistently virtuous nature causes her libertine master, Mr. B, to repent of his attempts to seduce her. Oh, how heartily I despise all my former pursuits and headstrong appetites. What joys, what true joys flow from virtuous love, joys which the narrow soul of the libertine cannot take in, nor his thought conceive. Indeed, Pamela's good conduct does not only reform Mr. B's behaviour, but the behaviour of almost every character she comes into contact with. Fittingly, the reward for Pamela's virtue is marriage, a uniting of the masculine and the feminine for procreative domesticity, which brings with it the middle-class dream of financial security and social advancement. As E.J. Clary states, heterosexual desire has been elevated to become an agent of moral change as opposed to a motive for sensual gratification, as perhaps it was within libertine culture. Women like Pamela have also been elevated to stand as symbols of morality, virtue, and modern British civilization. But concerns over the feminization of culture remained, concerns which were heightened by the fact that women were increasingly prevalent within the literary sphere. In 1762, the Critical Review wrote, there never was perhaps an age wherein the fair sex made so conspicuous a figure with regard to literary accomplishments as in our own. The men retreat and the women advance. The men prate and dress, the women read and write. The advancement of women into the traditionally masculine realms of reading and writing, set against the retreat of men into a feminized culture, clearly made some deeply uncomfortable. Nevertheless, women were entering the field in significant numbers, and the literary landscape by 1760 is almost completely unrecognizable to what it was in 1660. There were new challenges for women, but also new opportunities, and for the first time we can observe women defining themselves as pursuing careers in writing. If you were to ask what were women writing, the answer would be that women wrote in every genre and medium and played a role in pretty much every literary development of the period. When we think of early women writers, we tend to call to mind pioneering female dramatists like Afra Ben or novelists like Eliza Haywood. But the most popular literary form for women was probably poetry, as it was for men. Women also wrote large numbers of pamphlets and petitions and visionary or devotional writings, although, again, those genres were also popular amongst men. It's important to remember, however, that although women were writing in the same genres as men, they often engaged with them in different ways. In writings that, for example, call for some sort of political or social change, women often emphasize the unusual nature of themselves, a woman, speaking out, and therefore the corresponding urgency of the topic. This was one of a number of justifications which women provided for their writing. Other common excuses were that she had been persuaded by her friends, she needed to support an elderly, sick, or poor relation, or that she wrote to educate her children or promote general morality. Sometimes these excuses were made seriously, and sometimes tongue-in-cheek. The Irish poet Mary Barber prefaced her collection of poems with this statement. I am sensible that a woman steps out of her province whenever she presumes to write for the press, and therefore think it necessary to inform my readers that my verses were written with a very different view from any of those which other attempters in poetry have proposed to themselves. My aim being chiefly to form the minds of my children, I imagined that precepts conveyed in verse would be easier remembered. Clever tactic. 
this defence belies the fact that Barber had actually been doggedly pursuing a professional career since the early 1720s, uh, and many of her poems were written for adult patrons rather than for her children. And although Barber is ostensibly apologetic, she is also clearly using her femininity as a marketing tool by proclaiming that her poems are very different from other attempters. Barber was one of a number of women who were happy to market themselves as literary curiosities to further their careers. She was careful to advertise herself as a virtuous mother, probably to avoid the occupational hazard of a woman who made her writings available for the public being associated with a woman who was also sexually available. And this was an association that men did not generally have to contend with. So women were writing in the same genres and mediums as men, but they often presented these experiments in different ways or mediated their gender by employing different language, styles, or tropes. And for many academics, it is these important differences which justify the study of women's writing as a distinct field. As to why so many women began writing in this period, there are several significant factors. One was the general expansion of print culture, which you've already heard about today, which provided new opportunities for marginalised writers to circulate and make money from their compositions. It's worth pointing out, however, that many women did continue to write in manuscript or moved fluidly between the two mediums. Whilst the print trade was going, growing, women's literacy was also increasing. It's been estimated that roughly 10% of women could sign their names in 1640, rising to 30% in 1700 and 40% in 1760, which would suggest, suggest that there was a particularly rapid increase in the late <coughs> 17th century. Printers began to market works towards this growing audience of literate women. So I've mentioned the periodicals, The Athenian Mercury and The Spectator, but those had their own female spin-offs, The Ladies' Mercury and The Female Spectator, which you might want to go check out. The growth in women's literacy was accompanied by a number of political, philosophical and scientific <coughs> developments, which we generally refer to as the Enlightenment. New theories promoted reason as the primary source of authority and legitimacy, and challenged traditional customs for being irrational and overriding our natural rights and freedoms. The ideas of Descartes, I think therefore I am, and John Locke were becoming influential. Locke made the argument for contractual government rather than the inherited patriarchal custom of a monarch's absolute sovereignty. Now, these debates presented women with new opportunities to critique the customs which oppressed them and to assert their own capacity for reason. In her serious proposal to the ladies, the polemicist Mary Astle declared, "'Tis custom, therefore, that tyrant custom, which is the grand motive to all those irrational choices which we daily see made in the world, so very contrary to our present interest and pleasure, as well as to our future." Astle often calls out the male philosophers of the day for their insufficient consideration of women's issues. So in another work, she famously responds to Locke with this question, if all men are born free, how is it that all women are born slaves? Astle was part of an emerging proto-feminist discourse which developed within the general climate of philosophical inquiry, custom questioning, and literate women. Proto-feminist women came from all sides of the political spectrum, Tory and Whig. In fact, some, like Astle, were actually <coughs> fairly conservative while still calling for women's advancement. Besides Astle, proto-feminism was particularly prominent in the writings of Sarah Fudge Edgerton, Lady Mary Chudley, and Elizabeth Thomas. Their writings were often bold and combative. <coughs> Consider, for example, these extracts from Edgerton's poem, The Emulation. 
They're wise to keep us slaves, for well they know if we were loose, we soon should make them so. They fear we should excel their sluggish parts, should we attempt the sciences and arts, pretend they were designed for them alone, so keep us fools to raise their own renown. But in this blessed age, such freedom's given that every man explains the will of heaven. And shall we women now sit tamely by, make no excursions in philosophy, or grace our thoughts in tuneful poetry? We will our rights in learning's world maintain, which empire now shall know a female reign. That one is a, is a great poem, and I recommend that you go and read the whole thing. It's just one of thousands of surprising, exciting works by women writers that fall within this paper, not just proto-feminist writings, but writings on every conceivable topic and theme. It's perfectly possible for you to incorporate <coughs> women's writing into every essay that you write for paper four, and personally, I would encourage you to do so. A question that you might have, however, is how do I find these women? I know that women writers are out there, but who are they and how can I read them? It's still very common, unfortunately, for women writers to be underrepresented on reading lists, and many do not have modern critical editions of their writings. This doesn't mean, however, that you can't read them. You can usually access the original editions of women's printed writings via Ebo or Echo, and there are some excellent modern anthologies dedicated to women's writing. There are also a number of relevant online databases which the university subscribes to. One is Perdita Manuscripts, which features digitized scans of women's manuscript writing, as well as a number of critical essays. Another resource, perhaps the most important, is Orlando, which is an online database of women writers spanning from antiquity to the present day, so it's useful not just for paper four, but for all of your FHS papers. In each woman's entry, there is a biographical account of her life, and also a separate account of her writing career, which includes literary analysis of her variantial. And I hope you will take up the opportunity to discover them for yourselves. Thank you. Thank you.